Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When you're a lawyer trying a case, but you also happen to be the team member who gets the assignment of don't let the client mistry it, you got a lot on your shoulders. Please rise. Court is now in session. We'll begin in five, four, three, two, one. All right. This is the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, it's almost Thanksgiving. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing good. I'm going to I'm going to call out Raz, our producer, since he's on mute. And <laughs> did you, didn't it seem like he forgot how to count us in? He, take, he <laughs> right, takes well, one week I, off. I, I, not only that, but it, I, I did hear a baby, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> speak up right there at the end. So I think uh, he's got he's got some some uh, company there with him. Uh, he's, he's back. Yeah, I'm back now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Steve, you're are you on the road? Are you in North Carolina? I'm in North Carolina right now. So, uh, but you can't tell because I've got my uh, my green screen. Yeah. Background. You're incognito. Well, happy yeah. Thanksgiving. Happy yep. Thanksgiving to all our listeners. Although when this airs, Thanksgiving will be over. I think it'll be over. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but you know what, we'll just uh, act like every, everybody's listening to us live. Yeah. Yeah. It came from, well, it came from the heart. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, I want to go ahead and welcome our two guests. We have two fantastic trial lawyers from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So uh, let's welcome Brett Turnbull and Jerome Tapley. Uh, Brett and Jerome, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us, Steve. I appreciate it. And Jerome, how are, how are you? Steve, I'm doing great. Nice to be here with y'all. Uh, look forward to an interesting conversation, I hope. No, this is, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I hope I set this case up right because uh, this really, you know, this case could almost have like a, a it's, it's like a mystery uh, novel, you know, type uh, story along with a nice twist, you know, right there at the end, right before you guys, actually, I, like right when you guys got involved and Jerome was telling me that, about that beforehand and we'll, we'll definitely talk about um, how you came to get involved in this case because that's a really fascinating story too. And Yvonne doesn't know it, so will surprise her. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, well, let me go ahead and, and, and give a little bit of background. We'll start with Brett. Brett Turnbull is, uh, is uh, the principal uh, lawyer at the Turnbull Law Firm, and uh, he's based out of Birmingham, Alabama, as I said, and you can look him up at turnbulllawfirm.com. That's T-U-R-N-B-U-L-L lawfirm.com. And uh, Brett is a uh, proud grad of, of uh, the University of Alabama, and I noticed that Jerome is a proud grad of Auburn University, so I'm sure that doesn't get in between uh, these two guys ever. And uh, bo both went to Cumberland Law School. Uh, and, uh, and, and Brett, I noticed that you are barred in four different states. You're barred in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas. Uh, he's an AV rated lawyer, uh, national trial lawyers, 40 under 40, super lawyer year in and year out. Uh, very active in AAJ, uh, the Alabama um, uh, uh, AJ as well, and Alabama State Bar, and fantastic trial lawyer. Uh, both Jerome and Brett have tried a number of cases and had uh, a number of results in the um, in the seven and eight figure range. And uh, Brett, tell me if I'm uh, if, if I'm right about this, but it looks like you might speak fluent German. Uh, I right? Well, I did speak fluent German at one point in my life, but you know how that goes. You don't use it, and it. it it goes away. So it was one of my majors in college and I lived 
lived there for a little while. Yeah. Well, and I, I will a long, let time, her, a long time ago now. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I'll let everybody in a little secret about Brett. He is a uh, fantastic blackjack player. Uh, one time Brett and I were at a, uh, at a Southern trial lawyers conference together and we found each other, uh, uh found, uh, we were side by side at a blackjack table and, you know, I know the rules and I know how to, you know, what adds up to 21 and all that, but Brett really understood, uh, you know, the strategy behind it. And when, and he would always, he, he would, you know, gave me good advice on when to hit and when to, you know, stay. And I made good money that night. So thank you, Brett. Hey, well, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, probably the first thing my wife would like for, to be discussed, but that's all right. <laughs> right. Thanks anyway. <laughs> no, it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. Raz, all, Raz, all, maybe we need fun. to take that out in post. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Blast it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, and, and let me go to uh, to Jerome. So Jerome Tap, uh, Tapley is a principal lawyer at the Corey Watson Law Firm in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. He is the co-chair of their class action and consumer fraud litigation group uh, and has been on the steering committee of a, a number of mass tort uh, litigation uh, across the country. Um, and I understand, and, and also an AV rated lawyer, been named best lawyers in America, been named to the top 100 travelers, super lawyer year in and year out. Uh, and I understand uh, um, that getting involved in personal injury practice for you was very personal, Jerome, because you, when you were young, you lost a family member to a workplace uh, incident is what I, what I saw on your, on your resume. Yeah, um, I was... Um 1986, I was 10 years old. Uh, I can remember that summer pretty vividly. Uh, over the course of about three weeks, my grandmother lost her mother. Um, and then three weeks later, lost her oldest son, my oldest uncle, um, to a workplace injury. And I just remember in the years that followed, the lawyers who represented his wife and kids and the trial that took place in my hometown went all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. Uh, sort of set the standard for what a Alabama wrongful death action um, was worth um, and what would be upheld on appeal. And seeing the difference that that made in their family, having lost the only breadwinner and um, getting them back on their feet financially. Um, I knew from a pretty young age what I was going to do when I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, and, and a lot of people are better off for it. So we're glad you made that decision. Um, well, let's talk about this, uh, the, the case that we're here to talk about. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that we'll be asking about is, is how two Birmingham, Alabama lawyers end up in Los Angeles trying a case and, uh, and, and how that was. Uh, but um, the name of the case is uh, Cruz versus Nissan North America. And uh, the plaintiffs in the case were Hilario Cruz and Araceli uh, Mendez. And then... Uh, Solomon Mathengay, um, is that how you say his name? That's right. And Mathengay, and then, um, and uh, you were representing the family of uh, Saida Mendez, uh, Hilda, and Stephanie Cruz. Um, and Saida was a 27-year-old mother. She was driving um, Hilda and Stephanie to school. She had just dropped off her uh, older daughter, Araceli, at school and was um, driving to school and while driving in their minivan, a, uh, 2004 infinity QX 56, um, ran a red light and hit them broadside. Uh, and, uh, tragically, um, Saida, Hilda and Stephanie were all, uh, killed in the collision. Um, the, 
and and to hear that just the way the collision happened you would think well that's a pretty straightforward case it's you know somebody runs a red light they hit the family it's a tragic case but pretty straightforward uh, this case turned out to be anything but straightforward because uh, Mr. Mathinge was actually the one driving the 2004 Infiniti QX56. Uh, and initially, this case started out as a case against him. Uh, and we'll talk about the decisions made here, but it started out as a case against him. But then later on, it was learned that the Infiniti QX56, as well as uh, the Nissan Armada, and I think the, the Titan as well, all suffered from a problem in their braking system. And I, I'm gonna try and describe the uh, the defect correctly, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially um, the, the braking system on the Infinity had a uh, braking system booster that had been made by, uh, by Continental. And, um, and it was a, a vacuum um, braking system. And there was a sensor called a delta stroke sensor that would sense if there was a vacuum loss. Uh, and if there was a vacuum loss, there was supposed to be a backup uh, braking system called an optimized hydraulic braking that would kick in uh, and then uh, so that they would still be able to stop. S sometimes the sensor would sense that there was a vacuum loss when there really wasn't a vacuum loss. Um, and the way Nissan had designed this was that they still wanted the uh, optimized hydraulic braking known as OHB to, to kick in instead of just having sort of a light on the dash come on saying, hey, check your brakes. And the problem with, the, with when that happens is, is it changed the way braking um, uh, felt to the driver. So it basically um, went from where you'd, you'd feel the brake pedal push back against you, where it all of a sudden it felt like you were just pushing the brake all the way to the floor with no resistance. So the driver oftentimes felt like they didn't have any braking power. And so it caused a number of incidents. I mean, we'll, we'll get go through this, but um, thousands of incidents of people reporting that their brake pedal wasn't working, their brake pedal would just go straight to the floor, they would run red lights, things like that. And that's what happened in this case. Now, of course, Nissan in the, in the, um, in, in the trial argued uh, differently, um, but that was the allegation. And, uh, and that that's what caused Mr. Mathinge to essentially lose control. He actually drove into the southbound lane when he was heading northbound um, and then, you know, went through this intersection where he had a red light and hit uh, uh, Saida and Hilda and Stephanie um, and uh, killed uh, all three of them. He also suffered injuries, including a, a head trauma and a shattered hip, as well as some uh, as broken ribs. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll get through this, but essentially the case was realigned so that Mr. Mathinge became a plaintiff, uh, along with uh, Hilario Cruz and Aracela Mendez, all against Nissan North America, and resulted in a verdict, a total of $24,931,109. It was essentially $7 million for Hilda Cruz, $7 million for Stephanie Cruz, $7,431,019 for Saeda Mendez, and then $3.5 million for Solomon uh, Mathinge. So um, there's there's a lot that I've I've given there, um, and so I, I, I'm sure I've screwed up something. So go ahead and let me know if I have. But um, I, I really want to talk about how this case turned into into 
what it was when you guys got involved, because that's certainly not how the case started out. So, uh, Brett, if you if you want to bicker with him on any of that, uh, have at it. But I think he's pretty spot on. Uh, that's a very uh, concise understanding of a complex defect and exactly the story we tried to uh, try to tell the jury and help them to understand. Brett, what do you think? Well, I think Steve is an excellent product liability lawyer for plaintiffs across the United States. So I think he, uh, I think he has done an excellent job of making a presentation of what our case is about. That's for sure. Well, and I was also, I was also basically explaining the, trying to explain the the defect just the way Brett did in his opening. So uh, you know, you always got to make sure it's simple for the jury. So uh, you made it simple for me too. So thank you. Well. Well, it was one of those defects. It took a little while for, for everyone to figure out, no doubt about it. And um, I'll let Jerome tell the story of how the case came to be and how it came to, to a Birmingham firm. Yeah. You know, one thing before you get into that, Jerome, I should mention. So, as I said, Mr. Mathinga, um, you know, ran the red light, hit the family and, and, and killed them. So not only was he being sued in a civil case, but he was being prosecuted uh, criminally uh, for a vehicular homicide. So. To, to take this case from where he is being charged criminally with vehicular homicide to where he becomes a plaintiff against Nissan uh, is quite a story. So, Jerome, go ahead and, and, and talk about how that came to be. So there's really two stories here, and they're sort of happening simultaneously in parallel without either story aware of the other until um, they sort of transect and the parallel nature of the two stories uh, converge into one. So... My firm does a lot of consumer class action work. Uh, we get a call from a friend and a lawyer in California who has clients walk into the office and um, a mom and her kids are on the way to school and approaching a red light. She goes to hit the brakes and the car doesn't stop and narrowly avoids an accident, pulls into a parking lot of a neighborhood mall and cuts the car off, calls her husband, um, he would tell you to this day, he thought that the first time she told him about it, she was crazy because it's, it's transient and it's electric. And once you turn the vehicle off, the sensor resets. And until it faults again, you've got normal brakes. And so it happens to her yet again. Um, he still thinks his wife's not paying attention or distracted while driving. And as he testified in court, it wasn't until he drove the vehicle on a back road and went to stop at a stop sign and it wouldn't stop for him. He recognized there was something wrong with the car and went to see a local lawyer and Banks versus <laughs> Nissan, a class action case was filed by us and our co-counsel in California over this defect in the Northern District of California. We did discovery and got to the bottom of the defect, ultimately certified the class after class certification, a couple rounds of mediation, and we settled the case. Um, out of that settlement comes nationwide class notice. Nationwide class notice results in um, people who own these vehicles getting notification that they may be entitled to recovery and have a repair made to their vehicle because of the defect. Um, the defendant in the criminal case in California was Solomon Mathingi and his, um, his niece, who was a lawyer, uh, noticed in his mail the notice of the class action settlement and mentions it to him. Um, he then notifies his criminal defense lawyer who notifies the uh, prosecuting attorney 
And then we get a call on a Friday afternoon from a prosecuting attorney saying, introducing himself and saying that he's got a man who's run a red light in downtown LA and that he's going to start trial on Monday and wants to do so with a clear conscience because the man has said from the beginning that his brakes didn't work. And he looked into this class action case and sees um, the allegations of brake failure suddenly and unexpectedly. We have a conversation with him that lasts about 45 minutes and then find out days later that instead of starting trial on Monday morning, um, as an ethical lawyer and one who takes his responsibilities to the court and to the public seriously, he walks into court Monday morning and asks for continuance. And then in that process, uh, Brett and our firm, we, um, we ultimately figure out that there was a car wreck case, just a standard, ordinary car wreck case that we've all done, where the family sued Solomon Mathenge for running a red light and killing three people. The twist in the case was that, um, the twist in good fortune is that Araceli was um, Saida's daughter from a previous marriage. And so she had a lawyer. And Hilario Cruz, who lost his two daughters, had his lawyer. And there was a policy limits of $50,000, and the two lawyers couldn't figure out how to divide it among the three plaintiffs. Right. And so what otherwise and anywhere else in the world would have resulted in probably a general release releasing everybody, including Nissan, Instead, it was just a case stuck on a docket because the plaintiffs couldn't decide how to divide limited insurance coverage. And so <clears throat> we reach out and find the lawyers who have the case and tell them about our class action case, which they knew about at the time, uh, by that time, and told them that we thought there was a potential there that we could work together and that they may be missing the real case. And that's the point when Cruz versus Nissan gets started. Wow. I, I just have to say, you know, it's amazing um, the the prosecutor um, would make that call, especially the Friday before trial, uh, because, you know, by that point, he's probably ready to go. He's ready to pick a jury and ready to uh, put on his case. So um, it's just really an, an amazing turn of events, especially for Mr. Mathenge. He's absolutely the kind of lawyers that give the kind of lawyer that gives all lawyers a good name. Well, and yeah. it's a really interesting dimension of the case because I, so I didn't know that, that, that was new to me, how y'all, um, that the prosecutor reached out to you, but even reading the materials you sent before, um, talking to y'all today and reading those, one of the things that, that I thought was maybe a little bit unusual <laughs> was the, the inspection that the, um, I guess, I don't know if it was the police department or whatever, looking into the breaks because Mr. Mathenge had said, um, you know, my brakes didn't work. And we've talked in the show lots of times about how in a products case or really any case, um, sometimes what sort of responding first responders and, and, um, the investigation you get from state officials can, sometimes it can be really good. Sometimes it can be not so good. Sometimes it can be really detailed and sometimes not so detailed. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this case that, that factored into trial as we'll talk about was this kind of almost like a, um, you know, like an inspection that one of our experts would do sort of, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, into what the driver was saying that the brakes weren't working. 
Um, and, you know, and we're going to talk about how that plays out. But, but the, when I first read that, I was like, you don't usually have that, right? You usually, if there's a products case there, you've got whatever the troopers, you know, sort of conclude in their report and their reconstruction. But a lot of the, the looking into the product defect, you've got to do for yourself. But they, there was this weird component because of the criminal case where they had kind of looked into it a little, but without knowing all the stuff that you all uncovered in the class action. And that's a good point. Now, Brad, I want to ask you what you remember about that. But, you know, we're all trial lawyers here, right? And we understand the rules of evidence and what's admissible and what's not admissible. But the thing that was just eating us up, the entire trial team, the whole time is just we want to be Paul Harvey and tell the jury the rest of the story. I mean, everything that happened that they couldn't hear about. And, and little vignettes would come out in testimony here or there or why is the LAPD doing this? What's this about? And and the jury doesn't know the background and it's just eating us alive because we're wondering what are they thinking about this missing puzzle piece? Um, Brett, what do you remember about that part of it? Well, I remember that it was extremely frustrating for a few reasons. One, really the LAPD investigator, not to get into the weeds, I know you guys said we'll talk about it here in a minute, but the brakes were mechanically sound. I mean, if you looked at the brakes, the brake pads, the, the wheels, the rotors, everything on the brakes looked like it functioned just fine. Um, the problem with this defect is because it is, it is in the computer of the vehicle and, and it has to do with, you know, it obviously an intentional um, change in the feel and the performance of the brakes, but nobody knows that. It's not in the owner's manual of the car. OHB isn't even mentioned, not once. Um, and then when you turn the car off and you turn it back on, it cycles and it doesn't show back up. There's nothing that would indicate to the, to the investigating officers that this car had a problem. Um, and so what was so frustrating is that they had taken this car to a, an impound lot because of his claim that uh, obviously the brakes didn't work. And that was his, in their mind, his excuse. And so what they did is they went and did an investigation to verify that his excuse was BS. And that's the way they sort of looked at it. I think what Jerome is alluding to, and I, I'll, I'll get to it, I'll get to finally get to the answer to your question is, we feel like um, behind the scenes, and it didn't come in at trial, that there was a rush to judgment uh, on, on the part of the police as a whole in this matter, okay? That they, uh, there were various things at play. Mr. Bethinga didn't speak good English. He was elderly. Uh, there were things that, you know, again, these are not things, these are sort of between the lines things that the way we read it and you read some of these reports, it was like there's looking at these two dead children and understandably, um, you know, their mission wasn't necessarily to be thorough and completely and utterly follow the, find the truth, even, you know, with his statement, but frankly, it was dependent on, it. I mean, at that point, yeah. and they had enough where it was, I mean, there was, you know, and again, I'm not trying to, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and things like that, but it was very aggravating. And even at, even at trial, we felt like these police officers, you know, some of them came in to testify I mean, Jerome and I remember this, the first one that came in, the first witness of the case and told me about five things he was going to say. Uh, and then when he got on the stand and I started direct examining the guy and he says five opposite things that are horrible. For me. <laughs> um, I mean, we looked at each other like, what in the you know world just happened? Uh, but they, you know, they had, uh, they had their way of thinking about it. And then once they were kind of proven wrong, it was egg was on their face. And, right. and it took a minute for us to kind of clue into that. <laughs> Didn't take well, long. Witness. Yeah. Well, and you know, you know, I, I um, no, you know, we, uh, um, rely tremendously on, on our law enforcement, especially, you know, uh, in the investigation they do, but, it, but 
you know, once they've got their decision made on how something has happened, uh, I think we've all seen it is very difficult to get them to change their mind on what they believe happened. Um, and, and, and I can understand why, because they're dealing with so many criminal cases on a day-to-day basis where what the defendant says turns out to be wrong. So they're not going to just immediately say, oh, okay, well, what this guy said is right. Um, right. I did, I did notice though, Brett, and that's, I wanted to ask you about it. It's, it. It sounded like from the way you described it to the jury is that, you know, while this investigator went out and, and checked the brakes mechanically, um, and saw that there was no mechanical problems with it. It didn't sound like he had ever done a download of the ED of the, the electronic uh, data recorder of the vehicle because I, I, you made a reference in I think it was the opening that Continental went out three years later and downloads it and then sees that it has this air code, which I, I should have mentioned, which is the C1179 air code, which shows that this is the you know Delta Stroke sensor and, and the OHV. Uh, happening. So, uh, had they done a, a, a download earlier on? Um, and I'll let, I'll let Jerome answer the majority of this, but I would just say the, um, so one thing to know is when the car was not so damaged that it wouldn't power on and off. Uh, we'll talk later a little bit about the mismatch of the vehicles and how that played into some of the, the, you know, as you know, as a product guy, I, I feel confident that you'll be right on top of this, but the mismatch of the vehicles, a few other you know, sort of things that they were looking at made it look a certain way. So they did the, uh, they were able to power it on and off. The problem was they powered it on and off several times, which I know is your favorite thing in the world too. Right, and yeah. Jerome are kind of laughing over here, but um, yeah, they tried to do the the download of the actual, um, but you know, having keyed it on and off, it, it changes the, it changes what it reads because so many of the codes are thrown by virtue of the impact and the damage from the impact. Um, but I want Jerome, will you explain kind of the EEPROM and like why, how that all kind of went down? Yeah. So to, to answer your question directly, had they done a download? Yes. The answer is yes. They did do a download. Um, they did a download like any good lawyer would have their investigator or expert do a download. Um, the problem is, as Brett pointed out, because of the key cycles, this system is set up so that number one, I don't think many investigators look for diagnostic trouble codes when they're doing downloads. They're looking for, they're looking for mathematical data about the physics that tell them what happened to the car during the accident sequence. They're not looking for what's going on with various um, trouble sensors on the vehicle. So number one, they really weren't looking for that. Number two, had they been looking for that, depending on exactly when they did the download, they wouldn't have found it. This system is set up so that only the three most recent codes are readable by, with a standard code reader. In order to get, now all the codes that the vehicle has ever experienced are stored, but they're stored essentially under covers. And it takes the proprietary software of Continental to get at those stored old codes. Well, this thing had a huge frontal impact. And so we've got codes from sensors all over the front end of the vehicle going off. This code was done by the time the accident sequence was, up, was over, it, at least in terms of it being in the readable memory that they could have found. It's, it's already tucked away under the covers and away from sight. So to answer your question, yes, they did do a download, but <clears throat> fate and circumstances had taken over at that point and it wasn't for them to find. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial 
verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. A big part of the defense in the case was that, that uh, Mr. Mathinge, um didn't have a um, uh, this particular problem, didn't have this this delta stroke sensor problem, uh, you know, that had complaints of it. What he had was pedal misapplication, um, was which was what they were claiming. And they were claiming he was hitting the accelerator instead <laughs> of the brake. And some of the evidence they pointed to is that. At one point, I think he was going around 41 miles per hour. Then there was a, some of this was caught on security camera and it, they, they had at least put in evidence that he was going up to 51 miles per hour. And then I think they even had at the point of impact, he's up in uh, 72 miles per hour. Uh, and he, and I think he did say in his statement that um, he was accelerating um, so, so of course they were claiming that, that this wasn't the OHB problem. This was just, you know, driver air pedal misapplication. But I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is if that, uh, if that, uh, air code showed up, I mean, is, is that not definitive evidence that he was suffering from this problem? This, the same air that everybody else was, and of course, Nissan would say no. Well, so I would just add to that, that air code is not time-stamped. Okay. It just tells you that sometime in the history of the vehicle, this has occurred. So we thought we had really good evidence that matched what he was describing. Um, and you're completely right, Steve. Um, you know, Brett took most of the experts on the issue of the speeds, but what we tried in terms of plaintiff's theory and defense theory is that he he hits the brake pedal, it doesn't work, he continues to coast forward and into the intersection. Nissan's theory is he missed the brake pedal, he hit the gas pedal, and he accelerated through the intersection. That, Brad, it couldn't be any clearer than that, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the key is that the the C eleven seventy nine code because it was not in the current codes or the or the the first three, it goes into the historical section, which everyone in the case had to agree is not time stamped. It could it could have occurred at any time in the vehicle's existence. And so that gave wiggle room to them. Of course, frankly, that goes both ways, right? I mean, uh, both sides can argue. Uh, it gives everyone sort of an uh, – because in any crash like this, you're going to have – it's going to throw wheel speed sensor codes and whatnot in the first three every time because you have such an impact that it, you know, it breaks, breaks things. So it's pretty much it, – then it gets – placed into the uh, historical that was jerome's area of the case he, he killed him on uh the details of that the very technical details and then we get into accident reconstruction and frankly all of the things that mr Mathinga had said and the, his ability to testify or, or you know to be candid um i guess some people might say inability but either way yeah that was where kind of really where the case uh where the rubber hit rubber met the road um, we were able to establish the defect existed. We had a lot of evidence of uh, size, but then we really got into causation and it was a fist fight from there. Right. Okay. Well, it, so uh, uh, that sheds light on, on how they could have that theory. You know, one thing I, I did want to talk about is, you know, how did y'all, um, sort of go after this, I mean, this huge dis, uh, disparity between what your, accident reconstructionist was saying the speed was at the point of impact and the uh what the defense was saying the, the, i i think what i saw from your side was that it, that you had the um the delta v or the the speed at the time of incident was 48 miles per hour and that the defense had come up with 72 miles per hour i mean the that's such a huge difference there. You know, usually, you know, you always have the defense pushing things up, you know, maybe five, 10 miles per hour. But I mean, that's, that's just a really huge difference. How, how did y'all, uh, how did that play out at trial and how did you deal with it? Well, uh, we were, frankly, at some points I was terrified. Uh, I think Jerome could, <laughs> could confirm that too. And, and that I think there were even points where we looked at each other and went, holy God, is it really that, you know, did we screw this up? And was he really going faster than we thought? But, you know, the, the truth is the 72 was a mistake in our opinion. Uh, I know Jerome and I have talked about that a lot. They, they did a lot of, they gave us a lot of help and on that, in my opinion. They, they come in at something that's more palatable. That's a pretty narrow, small area. Um, he wasn't driving a race car. Uh, it was yeah, just I mean, sort of unfathomable. They had an eyewitness that was pretty bad for us, scared us pretty bad. Uh, came in right at the end talking about how the car roared uh, before impact, things of that nature. But basically, the attack was through accident reconstruction. Um, Jerome and I did a number of focus groups on the case before trial, and we figured out that the worst evidence in the case for us, for sure, were the photographs of the van. Uh, the van that the three people were riding in and, and we kind of went at that two or three different ways. One way was that we just put the photograph up and we basically, um, what, what, what we decided ultimately kind of got down to the end of was we had to deal with it. We couldn't ignore it. Um, we kind of had to credibly say the first time I looked at that That's photograph. That's a nightmare. I mean, I'm just thinking about how terrifying. stressed I am. You know, and I the asked 45 myself, days is it wrong? You know, was that trial, car really the going 72 in the office? And that's and so without we took it to Steve and expert depositions into the mix. Um, it already feels like there's too much to do. That is after crazy. analysis, why it was not a 72 mile per hour collision. So we had to kind mm. of, I feel like Jerome and I really worked hard together so nice. to try to find a way to make it the most credible that we could. The photograph was... You know, it was a terrifying piece of evidence for us that 
we had to kind of meet the jury where they were. There was no putting lipstick on that pig, so to speak, and trying right. to call it something it wasn't. I mean, it looked awful. But um, Jerome, I think it was actually Jerome that um, definitely, if I remember correctly, that came up with the correct way to go at it, which was how to explain the mismatch of the vehicles in terms of frontal versus side and the, the way the cars are comprised. Um, and, and then also it, the van was shoved into a pole. Jerome, why don't you tell them about that a little bit? And that was your idea. Well, I might've forgotten my idea, Brett. So thank you all for describing it. I read about it. So I think I, I know where you're going, but it, so a um, couple of things. One is, you know, it's a side impact for the minivan and I didn't hear what type of minivan it is, but there, you know, there's a, there's a big door there. It's usually a sliding door. There's very little, structure on the side that's protective structure uh, of most vehicles but it, but it, including you know the of a minivan um and then i'm guessing that the um i'm guessing that the infinity made the bumper of the infinity sat fairly high uh compared to where it was coming in but you know i mean a 48 <laughs> mile per hour crash into the side of a vehicle is going to look like a big crash uh, I would, uh, it wouldn't have surprised me, and I don't know how bad these photos look, but a 72 mile hour crash into the side of a vehicle, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me that you might see that vehicle split in half. Um, right. Because I've seen those vehicles where they, you know, get hit on the side so hard that they just, they just come apart and they get split in half. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's what I'm guessing you were talking about, Brett, and in the way it seemed like you guys were describing it at trial, which was this you know, you, you've got a, a 48 mile per hour, you know, uh, SUV, a big SUV uh, coming into the side of a minivan. It's, it, it's a big crash. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, the front end of the infinity is damaged as it looked from the outside, uh, the interior, the survival space of the infinity, including where Mr. Mathinga was sitting was pristine, um, which obviously tells you some, some things that you need to know in terms of, you know, you have something that sits up high, like you say, the center of gravity had an impact, the amount of weight had an impact. Um, and then of course, with it being a minivan and being really soft, those were all things, but we had to, of course, I mean, we had to figure out the right way to explain all that, where it didn't sound like we were just explaining. Um, right. they did a decent amount of accident reconstruction. And, uh, when we got it, I actually watched it and I called Jerome and I, I was in an airport. I'll never forget. <laughs> I said, man. This is not good. Like we were in California, you know, in California <laughs> experts are 45 days from trial. You don't, it's like everything happens at the end. And, uh, and I was already sort of doing the recon and I was telling him, I said, man, what are we going to do? And he said, well, we're going to figure it out. But you know, the, I'll never forget. I said, well, what, I mean, this is unbelievable. He said, I know that's why they sleep on a bunch of bags of cash. And it's true. I and mean, we had to figure <laughs> right. out how to attack it as best we could. I mean, they, they definitely, who knows how many of those things they did. Steve? We all know that. Right. And they probably yeah. did. 65 and produce three of them. But, uh, it was definitely no expense. Uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't try to save any money. I, I, I suppose if we got what we, what we asked for and, and, um, for punitive damages, they probably, you know, I'm sure it's justified, but right. uh, that was definitely uh, one of the more challenging things. And it took, definitely took Jerome and I both a long time and a lot of work to try to figure out how to attack it. Well, you said something interesting there that I didn't know. In California, you get the expert uh, opinions 45 days before trial? Yes, it's terrifying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and and uh, it, I mean, so you get, what is it? A, is it a report? And is it supposed to be like sort of a federal court fully written report with all the opinions in it? Yes. Okay. And then you get a chance to depose them? 
Yeah, we were taking depositions of experts between motions and Lemony and Board Iron. Brett, is that right? Yeah, we, we had uh, Ryan Lutz on our team, too. He, he worked so hard. And um, Adam Pittman, great lawyers. And it's a good thing we had four really good, fantastic lawyers on the case because in times we had four lawyers in four cities uh, working on four different things in the case. We didn't have the opportunity, you know, whatever, to team up and – it, it was all hands on deck. There wasn't any, there wasn't anybody who could just uh, sit and be second chair for that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean that, that, you know, 45 day, I mean, you, because we know, we all know how long these cases take, especially product liability cases take from the, you know, when you uh, started up to get it to trial and then to learn 45 days before you're, you're set to go to trial for the first time, what the, you know, expert opinion of the other side is, I mean, that's just gotta be, um, uh, it, it definitely would, would cause a lot of stress. I, let me just put it that way. Oh, and the, game, it, and the games that get played, I mean, the last two expert depositions that got taken in the case, <clears throat> our software engineer, I put him up and defended him. And then the next day I was going to take their accident reconstructions. Brett was going to do him live at trial, but I was already out in California, so I was going to cover it. Um, no time limits for depositions under state court rules in California. So, they kept our guy on in the chair answering questions till just after midnight, uh-huh. knowing that I had to go get ready and try to get some rest to depose their guy starting at 8 a.m. the next morning, an hour away. And it was obvious they were just killing time to keep me awake. Obvious. Hmm. God, yeah. Wow. They'll, they'll, uh, they offer to continue. It's about 400 times. Right, of yeah. course. Of course. They'll, they'll always say that. We, if you guys want to continue, we're happy to do that. Uh, all you got to do is say when. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's the right. last thing I'll add on the experts is it really truly was this case on accident reconstruction was the purest sense of the word, a battle of the experts. I mean, yeah. the, the, the two, the two opinions couldn't be reconciled in, in any way whatsoever. It was either X or it was Y, and it, you couldn't split the baby. There was nowhere in between, and fortunately, I, I really think uh, what changed the case for us is we had this amazing lady, honest as the day is long, middle school librarian, was in the best position to see everything, and we hung the entire case on one question of her. If somebody comes in this courtroom and tells you that Mr. Mathingay's vehicle was doing 70 miles an hour coming down that street, is there any way that happened? No way that happened. Wow. wow. She was a librarian. Um, yeah. And I, I have to give Jerome all the credit in the world. He took, he, he direct examined, you know, direct examination. I find uh, oftentimes more difficult than cross personally, oh, because yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know what these people are going to say after that first cop, I was blown away. I asked him five questions and kind of looked around the room and said, wait a minute, that one would, you know, I was thinking that isn't what you're supposed to say. Um, exactly and you know i have to give jerome a lot of credit because not only did he direct her to the right place but um we didn't really know exactly what she was going to say either she'd given a statement but not a deposition i mean it was tricky and i he made a judgment call right at the end of it to to uh he correctly gauged by just by gut that she was going to um i think the right word is uh play even play fair and she did. Yeah. 
That's good. I mean, you're exactly right, Brett. I mean, you know, a lot of people underestimate direct examination. Everybody likes to do a good cross because it's, it's fun. You know, when you're up there, you've got the documents, you know, you're, you've got this guy, you know, left to right that, you know, cross is fun. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it, it, it can be a lot of fun. Direct can be very difficult and fact witnesses, especially, um, I, I often say to people, you know, there's not many fact witnesses who will make your case, but they can break your case just so quickly. I mean, you know, as, as soon as you know, all of a sudden your your case is just uh, up in flames because uh, because they said one thing. But uh, it sounds like this fact witness uh, helped make your case. But I mean, you know, it, it, you're exactly right. It, it, they can be very tricky to handle and you have to be careful about them. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's 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 also because you're at the beginning of the case and, you know, jurors are usually at that point in time, spent, you know, paying the closest attention. Um, you know, if they say something bad about your case, it's, it can be, uh, very hard to recover from. Yeah. And she, um, she was a very, I mean, I won't say difficult, scared. We were scared to death because very private person. Um, she had not been deposed in the case. She had never returned a phone call. Didn't know what she was going to say. I met her in the hallway right before she testified on cross. She was asked, um, have you ever talked to Mr. Tapley before? Yes. When in the hallway right before now, what did he say? He introduced himself and told me to take a deep breath and tell the truth. That is literally what happened in the hallway. <laughs> so I didn't know what she was going to say other than we knew she was in the right place to see everything. And we were confident that our expert was right. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget. I guess it was two nights before this, Brett, where Brian Lutz, our partner, said, we got to have this lady. And he said, I'm just going to call her. And I remember she answered the phone and he said, please, can you just come testify? I got a mom and two kids who died. Just tell the jury what you saw. And she said, I'll come. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, that's great. And I'm, I'm glad she did. Um, you know, so I, we haven't really talked about, uh, you know, uh, the history of what was happening here with this vehicle. And, um, and, and, you know, Brett, one thing that I, liked about your opening and it was a, a great opening was that, you know, you, you, we talk about how you want to tell the story to the jury. Do you want to tell it from the plaintiff's perspective first or the defendant's perspective first? And you really did a great job of just taking it from, you know, what did Nissan know? What, what did they done about it? And what were they not doing? And you did all of that before you even got to telling the jury what happened in, you know, your case. Um, you sort of let them up and, you know, and, and by, and, and by doing it that way, you know, the jury sees what's coming. You know, they, they, they have all this information about this dangerous defect that Nissan's not doing anything about it. Well, we know something bad is really is going to happen. And then you get to the incident, but talk, talk about, so, you know, the evidence that you had, um, uh, developing Nissan's knowledge about this defect and, and sort of what they did or did not do about it. Well, I can take zero credit for the massive amount of evidence that was um, attained in discovery of this case by Jerome and Ryan Lutz and Adam Pittman um, and others at, at Corey Watson because it was a. To, I don't think I've ever seen a case with more motions to compel, Jerome. I mean, you got any? I mean, and, and out there they sanction them every time you win a motion to compel. I can't imagine um, the type of misdirection. 
um, the type. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, this is just a fact. Like you can go in there and look in the file. I'm not trying to beat on defense lawyers. That's just a fact, but I want to tell you, I mean, we're talking, uh, I mean, Steve, me and you've been knowing each other a while doing product stuff, the OSI depots and taking the time to fly to all these different cities and take these 25 minute depositions, uh, is exhausting. And they Mm -hmm. did it in a way like I've never seen before. Um, so obviously that isn't something that I can take any credit for at all, but obviously, you know, the key is that you start the story with the defense and what they knew and when they knew it, uh, we always talk about betrayal and that's a trusted relationship, uh, knowingly broken for the wrong reason. And of course it's, you know, it's an unforgivable betrayal. And so we try to establish an unforgivable betrayal, um, which knowing the defect and burying it was something. So there was, there were, these guys compiled NHTSA complaints. Um, they compiled Nissan's in, you know, customer complaints. They compiled, I mean, you name it, uh, 30, 40, I don't even remember how many was it drum 40 depots of OSI witnesses. Um, mm-hmm. a good thing because, uh, these people, a lot of, some of them got admitted and some of them were things the judge, you know, but we all know how that works too. Right. We had to parse through some of it, but, by the time we got to the end, we had enough evidence of investigations and failed investigations and sort of um, uh, investigations that ended without really good reason or, or good common sense. And it just really was, you know, made for a great story. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that you pointed out was, you know, that they, as soon as they basically put this vehicle on the market with this new braking system, uh, which I think the first year, if I saw right, it was uh, 2000, was it 2002? Uh, but they started getting reports basically as early as April of 2004. Um, and then, uh, and had like, four, you know, over 400 in a very short time, uh, basically do this, um, you know, what they call a, in a safety assessment or an important corrective action request. And then after that, they get another 3,897 reports uh, and then from what I could tell, and you, you, you correct, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like they, they kind of looked at it, saw all these reports and said, well, this is the way we've designed the vehicle to work. So there's not really much for us to do. Now they did do a, a technical service bulletin to the, um, to the dealers, which essentially says if a vehicle comes in, here's how you, here's what you need to do about it and fix it. But the problem with that is, is it's only fixes the ones where people have complained about it and doesn't do anything proactively. And so a big part of your case was, you know, they, they knew they had this problem, but then didn't recall it and tell everybody about it, tell, you know, people who hadn't had this happen to them yet uh, and, and didn't do that. But I mean, you know, some really just powerful evidence, which, you know, from my standpoint is, you know, when a, when a defendant is going to come in there and they're going to try and blame um, the driver for what happens, you know, when they've, when they've got all this, you know, what I'll just call mountains of evidence and aren't really doing much about it, uh, really just hurts them in, in going after the driver, um, in trying to blame him. Yeah. I think Steve, a key witness on that was a gentleman named, uh, Robert Yakushi, former director of product safety at Nissan. Um, we took his, he was retired and working as a headmaster of a school outside of Nashville and tracked him down, got him under subpoena. And I mean, I don't know how many hours of prep went into this and how much war gaming and round tabling it from all the lawyers on the team and sort of 
what that trial cross that we're going to videotape and we get one shot at should look like because we know he's not coming live to trial. But the more we think about him and see documents, I mean, it just felt like decisions were being made from a place of arrogance. And you pointed it out that it's, it's performing as designed. So how could it be bad? And, right. and so what we really set out to do in that cross of him is really establish that as the director of product safety, you had one job. You only had one job, safe products. And then you never know what a witness is going to do. But I mean, the, the question that, um, that frankly, we got the answer to we wanted was, Mr. Yakushi, do you believe that Nissan can design a defective product? No. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure I understood that that even though they were saying, okay, well, this is how it's supposed to work, or it's, it sounds like one of the things they were saying well, was, you know, and I think this comes down to their arrogance that these are these aren't technically trained people; these are just your average you know, Joe complaining about something that happened in their vehicle. But I wanted to make sure I understood that they, they did actually have a, a fix for the thing that they said was working the way it should, but they did have a fix for it, but you didn't get it unless you had the problem and complained about it and took your vehicle in. That's exactly right. So they had a fix for something, but nothing was really wrong. That's right. <laughs> it was okay. working as it should, but we will fix it. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I, I don't know how, how your jurors felt or if you even got to talk to him. But I think that's one of the things that for the average person and certainly for me, I know more about cars than I ever did before now that I do what I do for a living. But, you know, that you have this sort of... Um, this assumption that once you do products work, you know, isn't true, which is that if there's a problem with your vehicle that they know about and can fix that, you'll get one of these letters in the mail that we've all gotten about taking your car to the dealership, um, to have it fixed when you can and when they can fix it. So, you know, I just, I, it, I don't know. I don't know why I'm still surprised, but the idea that there's a fix out there, and you just don't get to know about it unless you already have a problem, um, you know, or, you, you know, you're this woman who calls and can't stop her car a bunch of times and, and nobody believes her at first. That just makes me so mad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the, I think there's one other critical part of the case, at least part of the trial and part of the strategy of the trial that probably we ought to talk about is we had two or three human factors experts that we had retained. And we recognize that this case really somewhere in there was a human factors problem in terms of what people thought was going on with their vehicle. But every time we talked to them, it just sort of mushied it up. And it felt like we were playing on the defendant side of the field instead of presenting our case. Yeah. And I remember Brian and Brett and I sitting down and, and recognizing that we had these 40 OSIs that we had deposed and we made a decision, um, and Brett talked about it in open. Um, we had a decision of what to do and decided, let's pick the ones that we all just, I mean, truly connect with and like as people. And instead of this being um, Nissan saying it's Mathinge's fault, let's have Nissan say it's all these good people's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And put the OSIs up there. And Brett, you remember that, that part of the strategy in the trial. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a little scary because the defense obviously had the pedal confusion or whatever you want to um, – and we were obviously attacking that in various ways. And one of the ways was that our experts were able to come in and obviously rebut some of those things. But the bigger problem was that they on cross, we felt like our human factors experts had to give up a lot of ground on things that the OSI witnesses were describing differently. I mean, the OSI witnesses were like, this is terrifying. The brakes don't work. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And, you know, candidly, the, the human factors experts at times on cross would would sort of, again, I know he's still like muddy it, but yeah, they, they would just be weaker on that. And so we really had to dig deep and decide whether we could prove our, our elements. And we had every type of expert that we needed. Um, it was funny. They actually moved to exclude our experts, uh, human factor experts on motion eliminate. Uh, and then when we withdrew them, they moved for JML. And so we had proven our case because they were quintessential and they were, uh, you know, right. an absolute uh, necessity for our case in order to proceed. But no, Jerome's right. A tactical decision about not using a human factors expert instead using the OSI witnesses and calling them our human factors uh, witnesses was key. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it's funny because uh, one of the first cases that we tried as a firm was against Daimler Chrysler and we had a human factors expert and the judge threw him out uh, because it, what he was testifying to wasn't outside the kin of the average juror. And while, you know, we were nervous at the time and thought the judge got it wrong, I, I think the judge actually did us a favor because, you know, then we just started going at it from, you know, uh, you know, what is your average user going to do? And, and, and we used OSI witnesses and then, and then use cross-examination of the corporate representatives, which, you know, in, in my mind is usually the, one of the most effective ways to deal with that. So, um, and, and I will say you guys had, you know, in the ones you were reading in your opening and closing, just some great, uh, you know, OSIs where people were, ex were describing the exact same thing that Mr. Mathinge had been going through, which was, you know, tried to stop their vehicle, couldn't stop it, pedal went to the floor and kept going through several red lights before they could get there, you know, and, and barely avoided a, a collision. So, it, I mean, very similar complaints, um, which, which, you know, uh, you know, all of these different users, you know, and, 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 and the thing that I think Nissan forgets is that th these are all their customers. I mean, these are all people who at one point chose to, you know, buy and drive a Nissan because they like the vehicle. Um, and yet they're telling them about a problem and they're ignoring it. How did yeah, the one that really sticks out in my mind is Rick Nord, um, former D one, uh, tight end was secret service protection detail for the president trained how to drive a car under crazy circumstances. Um, defense lawyer scoffs at him in his testimony and says, so are you telling this jury that you think you almost pushed the pedal all the way to the floor? And he said, no, I tried to push it through the floor. <laughs> this big mountain of a man is just so confident yeah. in himself and just somebody we all like and would respect and wraps himself around the flag. And then he gets attacked for what he says about how his car malfunctioned. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. 
Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. How did um, Mr. Methenge do on the stand? <laughs> Brad, I couldn't be in the courtroom that day, so you're going to have to tell this story. <laughs> well, he had a great lawyer. Uh, Paul Kiesel from L.A. was representing him, as well as uh, Kirk Walden from Sacramento. A great lawyer is plural. And they did their best to prepare him and direct examine him. Um, but to be completely honest, English was about his fourth language. Um, he was literally, I mean, he was elderly. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about that was just terrifying was that during his criminal case, he actually had given some testimony in his preliminary hearing for the criminal case because uh, got pretty far down the road, as you know. And they actually, his lawyer, you know, understandably so, his def criminal defense lawyer told him, look, you got three cases, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at three counts of manslaughter. Um, if you just, they're basically just saying it was a scoff law. Wasn't that the word they used around scoff law? He no. just, just, just uh, drives real fast. He's originally from Africa. They drive different over there, this kind of this type of thing. And, you know, and so he, I mean, at some point he kind of caved. This poor old man got up on the witness stand and said, maybe I hit the wrong pedal. Um, oh, man. Before, obviously, and of course, you know, in the hospital, he's in there. Uh, there's in the police report that he's saying that he pushed the brakes. The car didn't stop. He used the word accelerating. Um, but if you talk to him, he said, yeah, it was accelerating. It wasn't stopping. But I mean, if you it's just so the most terrifying thing of it all is how much there was out there already uh, that we couldn't fix. I mean, it's a very um, I know, you know, this I mean, shoot, I know, you know, as well as anybody, it's just when you know it's coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it, it's like, how much attention do we call to it on direct? How, how do we uh, try to shine this up as best we can? And then there's the part where, frankly, based on his age, his language barrier and otherwise, I mean, that's the most terrified I've ever been um, in a trial, I think, in my career, because I couldn't I couldn't do anything about it. You know, yeah, I just had to sit there and watch and pray to the Lord that, you know, this didn't go completely south. That, you know, you just weren't sure what he was going to say. And I don't I don't mean that I actually I very much believed him, but that didn't mean that uh, that he was going to be able to testify in a way that it was going to come across. 
Yeah. Right. And, and we should mention, I don't know that we did, that he, he was from Kenya, uh, although had moved, I think, in his 20s or something like that. He had been there for, uh, been in America for quite a while. And, um, and he was about 72 years old or something when this happened. Um, and, and also what I noticed, it sounded like he had, he had just bought this vehicle from auction, right? I mean, like, it sounded like literally days before. He had a couple of weeks. It was in a prior okay. accident. Um, nothing to do with the defect in the case, but he had to have some cosmetics fixed up on it. I think he'd been driving it for two days. Wow. Okay. How did you all deal with uh, the fact that he had said that, you know, maybe I pushed the, or I guess how did Paul Keys or whoever dealt with that? How'd they deal with the fact that he said, you know, that maybe I did push the wrong pedal? Well, um, one way was that, it, you know, we kind of suffered from his uh, language barrier in the way that he described things. He called the gas pedal the gasoline pedal, right? So there were a lot of things yeah. that he would say, and you'd be like, um, you know, you're trying to follow it. So fortunately, he was also just as very difficult to understand in his preliminary hearing. So it wasn't quite as clean as I hit the wrong pedal. It was it was kind of a muddled. Uh, uh, there was enough wiggle room that you could kind of look at it both ways, just like the rest of it, but. Uh, it's a tough thing because we all know that we've had clients who've said things uh, that were not good for our case. And there's sort of the fine line between losing all credibility and um, embracing some of it. And I think that what we tried to do was embrace some of it based on who he was and the circumstance. Uh, it was obviously a very unique circumstance. I mean, who, who's being prosecuted for you know three felonies um, that you might maintain some credibility by admitting that essentially you were lying? Uh, but that's kind of what we were in. I mean, that's kind of what we were faced with. And it was, it was a tightrope for sure. You know, Jerome and I um, did have a little bit of the benefit that obviously our family, you know, we represented our family. We were able to create just a slight degree of separation um, from him to where, I mean, obviously what he said had huge impact on our clients and our client's case, but we were able to sort of manufacture a um, healthy uh you know, healthy removal to where we were able to, I think, I think at least during the course of the trial, we were able to help each other because it didn't, we looked separated enough where we could help with each other's credibility at various points. I'm talking about with Mathinga and his lawyers. Mm -hmm. just I think we were also able to very effectively in Vordar sort of introduce the jury to the fact of um, withhold judgment his words may not mean what you think they mean once you get to meet him in person, because um, he he really did have an odd manner of speaking owing to the fact that English was his fourth language. And so his word choice could could be slightly not appropriate at times. But if you really thought about it, you could figure out, OK, I know what he's saying. But added on to that, and Brad just alluded to it, he had a very thick accent. I mean, very, very thick accent. And so not being exactly the right word and the accent being a little off, I mean, you had to really, really try to understand the man. And I mean, I remember over and over again, we just kept saying, I wish we had some spell we could put on this guy and, and give him the ability to say exactly what he means because we know what he means. And you just, you got your fingers crossed, hoping and praying that the, the jury understands what he means. And we went so far, I think, Brett, you helped me remember, were there two jurors we intentionally left on that English was not their first language because we wanted somebody who could empathize with him and sort of his language barrier? Yeah, I have to say venue matters, like we all know. 
Um, right. We, we had the, the first time in my career, I got to see the language barrier discussion in terms of whether jurors were uh, excused for cause. I was a little shocked at some of the folks uh, English that were allowed to be considered for the jury. And, and I don't necessarily mean that good, right, wrong, bad, or indifferent. It's just the truth. I was, um, we had a fella from Korea who I'm not quite sure how much English he spoke, but he was on our jury. Um, right. And I also, he was also happened to be a software engineer. So that, that tended to, um, uh, which was obviously vital as well. And I mean, frankly, Harry Plotkin helped us. He was our, the jury consultant on the case and he's from LA. He knows California as well as anybody in the world. And he was very confident that that would be the right uh, jury and the right juror. But yeah, there were some folks on the jury that, that were certainly uh, English wasn't their first language. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget when I was picking a jury up in uh, New Jersey uh, one time that uh, there, there was several people who were, uh, I think they were Vietnamese or, um, and uh, they basically, you know, came up to the, judge and said in you know barely english at all that they couldn't um you know understand english it, it wasn't their first language and the judge every single time she would say you you know you read the notice to get here and you got here right so you're on the jury you know <laughs> get back there in line yeah that, <laughs> it makes me think of one we had recently where you know it was the it was kind of in that intro the judge asked if anybody had problems with english and then they'd come up and then she'd just ask them a bunch of questions you know where do you live where do your kids go to school and then suddenly they didn't have quite so many problems with english and she'd be like oh, sit back down <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well we we haven't really talked uh, a lot and, and I, I don't want to overlook it the uh, the um you know saida uh, and and hilda and stephanie um i i think was it was stephanie six years old Old. Hilda was four years old. I mean, I mean absolutely tragic. Um, t talk a little bit about them and how you went about presenting damages for, uh, for, for uh, their, de their death in this case. I mean, obviously a tragic death. Well, the, obviously the human loss part of the case was, I mean, it was obviously very heavy. It was horrendous. One challenge we had was that in California and Jerome helped me remember this by detail, but um, in order to get to punitive damages, you had to have some form of compensatory damages that were uh, economic in nature. That's right. And, and you know, in Saida, we didn't have lost wages. Um, we weren't really able, there was a technical reason, and I'm not quite, I can't remember exactly, but there was a technical reason we really didn't have household services um, for Saida. And so we were really, really battled the whole trial with how to do it. And, and ultimately, Jerome found some case law about their clothes. Why don't you tell them about that, Jerome? Yeah, so the case law actually comes from a case probably most of your listeners will be aware of. And it was the wrongful death lawsuit against O.J. Simpson. And the only economic damages that could be proven at that case was the value of the negligee that Nicole Brown was wearing when she was killed. And the court allowed uh, plaintiffs to prove that economic loss so that there would be a hook to get to punitive damages upheld all the way to the California Supreme Court. And so it was the Simpson case um, that led us, and the judge thought we were crazy, proving what the clothes they were wearing at the time of the accident were worth. I mean, I remember him, he was just like losing his mind. It was hilarious if it wasn't so scary. Um, yeah. And then we finally told him, we have to judge or we can't get to punitives. 
And he said, well, I'm going to take this under advisement. And he comes back the next morning. And it's like it's been his idea all along. And he, I mean, it really, it really was kind of shocking, Brett. Um, you remember those days? Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was, we were stressed to the gills about it. Well, I, I was going to ask you because, it, you know, it, I mean, obviously this is a tremendous verdict, but, it, you know, when you do see the economic damages for Hilda and Stephanie, it's, uh, they gave you $20. And then for, um, for uh, Saida, it was $50. So I, I, I was wondering where that came from. So now I know that that, that was their, uh, that was the economic damages you had to, uh, in order to argue for punitives. And it was literally the clothes that they were wearing that got destroyed in the accident. Wow. Well, there's always weird stuff that you have to learn about, like another state's damages, but that is pretty weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was very difficult to uh, explain in closing because we couldn't tell them why. We couldn't say, well, this is the only way we were allowed to have the potential for a punitive verdict. And of course, you know, to be fair, the, def- the jury ultimately found, did not find um, the um, punitives. But I mean, I again, I'm, sometimes I lose sleep over that. I'm not quite sure how, but. Uh, I think they, I think they potentially counted that in in their mind for some of the, the compensatory side. And to answer your question, also really just to give the family uh, the credit they deserve. They were nice folks. They were originally from Mexico, and um, you know, obviously it was it was just horribly tragic. One of the things throughout the course of the trial that was memorable for for me, and I know for Jerome and Ryan and everybody else, Adam, everyone else in the, in the trial who were out there for five weeks or six weeks or whatever it was, it was a long trial because. California tries cases for a few hours a day, but the agony that our client endured during the course of the trial. um, I mean, here's a man who lost not only his two daughters and his significant other, but he's having to sit across the aisle in a small courtroom from a person who for several years, he thought was the killer of his two children. and Um, And just watching his tribulations with that. I mean, he wasn't obviously, I mean, despite the defect, like, you know, you never, you never, I can't imagine, but like there were times where we were really worried that he was going to lose it. And, and, and there were days he didn't come to court. And, um, you know, frankly, that was actually one piece of the trial that was actually, nobody really knows. Um, Jerome and I, uh, you know, frankly showed up one day and our partner, Ryan Lutz said that Hilario had called him and said that he was coming to court and, going to get there in the morning and tell the judge to dismiss the case against Nissan because he had decided uh, that the thing was to blame. And um, then he kind of disappeared on us for a few days. I mean, Jerome, it, uh, you know, so I'm sitting, all of us are sitting there taking witnesses, looking, looking at the door the whole time, wondering if he's about to bust in there and um, lose it. And he held it together. But I mean, it wasn't without serious, serious work by Ryan Lutz uh, as part of the team. And, um, in fact, there were whoever's witness it was that they got kind of shielded from that, uh, that I don't want to call it a sideshow, but that distraction, you know, on a daily basis during the trial. Yeah. Right. Well, it's so emotional to begin with. And then the stuff that happens at trial in a products case, the battle of the experts and all that other stuff that we've at least been there before. But for clients, they don't know what is normal. They don't know how much of it is, you know, just defense games. And, you know, it's all it's just it's just their case and their lost family members for them. So I can imagine it had to be a horrible roller coaster for him. And I don't, I, 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 I don't think I could be dissuaded from this, but I don't believe Hilario Cruz was 100% sure it was Nissan's fault until he heard the, the verdict read. 
Wow. Yeah. And Brett mentioned it, Ryan gets a lot of credit. I mean, when, when you're a lawyer trying a case, but you also happen to be the team member who gets the assignment of don't let the client mistry it. You got a lot on your shoulders. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I did want to ask, so, so I, I mean, the, the verdict you all got was a, was a tremendous verdict, uh, but I, you did ask for significantly more in the opening and closing. So I, I was just wondering if, if you had any sense for how the jury came up with the amount that they did or, or, you know, where they, where they got their numbers from. And, and I, and I in no way want to say 7 million, you know, for each loss of life is insignificant. I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous award, but, but uh, you all did ask for more at the, in, in both the opening and closing. So did you get any sense of that? Yeah, I think that two things, one, you know, the number that was settled on was um, in part from some of the focus groups that we do. And I think, I mean, I know you guys, see, y'all can relate to this. Focus groups are fantastic. Uh, mock trials are fantastic, but they are a microcosm of the real world. And, oh, yeah. you know, in hindsight, the way I, and, and it's true. And I mean, Jerome and I've actually talked about this a lot after the fact, you know, the number that we asked for clearly didn't offend the jury. Like a lot of people believe is the case. And I, I tend to believe, and I think Jerome still agrees with me. He's got a huge case since this one um, where he got a $50 million verdict. So he, he may have, I don't know, he may have a different, different opinion about it. I've had a couple of my, you know, verdicts myself, but since then, so you sort of have a flow um, in hindsight, I think that the number was really engineered uh, more looking at it from a perspective of it. Had they marked yes on punitive damages. Um, and again, I, I feel like maybe there was somebody back in that jury room that knew if they marked yes, they were going to be coming back for, for more after five weeks. I can't right. answer that for sure. Um, I do feel like the number was intended to obviously anchor things high. Uh, it may have gotten to where it, to where it was so high that it really left them to their own devices. Um, because as you noticed, Nissan obviously wanted a defense verdict, so they didn't, they didn't really float a number in, in response. Jerome, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I know uh, it's been a while since we talked about it. Well, I mean, there've been a number of books written on human psychology and, we know that we all think in two ways, and some of us think in the two ways at different times and for different lengths of time. But our thought process uh, really are emotional based on our common, our past experiences and rational based on logic. And every one of us is both an emotional thinker and a logical thinker. Um, we recognize through the focus grouping and the mock trials that we had to have a smart jury. We were going to be talking about technical things dealing with speeds of vehicles and crush damage and computer programming and why this decision versus that decision. So this is the, this is the best educated jury I've ever put in a box uh, by far. And that was intentional. We also, I think we knew, I mean, we talked about it just briefly, but we knew that educated people stay less in that emotional frame of thinking than the typical person does. They move into the logical, rational realm a lot faster. And it probably had something to do with the number that they weren't in their, their emotional frame as long as the average person. And, you know, I can't fault them. They got it right. And we needed smart, educated people to get it right. And, so uh, 
that's really sort of where I am at this moment in time, Brett, yeah. thinking about it. I mean, we got, we got the jury we needed to do justice and to them, um, I think they took that logical, rational thinking over into doing the math and $7 million for loss of life uh, for some very, very humble middle-class folks is a whole lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, I mean, and the jury ultimately decided not to award punitives. It, it, I, I didn't ask you all, did you have a chance to talk to the jury or were you, yeah. were you not allowed to do that? Okay. Did did you get any sense from them about their decision not to award punitive damages? Because I mean, yeah, you had some pretty compelling evidence, I thought. You, you know, willful conduct is a tricky concept for jurors, particularly for smart, well-educated jurors. Um, what we heard in the hallway, and we got to speak to them for about 45 minutes, the ones who wanted to hang around. Um, what we heard in the hallway was, we think they screwed up. This is a bad mistake, but we don't think anybody meant to do it. Um, which, you know, I thought we did a good job in the case and I thought Brett did a real good job in close talking about what willful is and what willful ain't, but it's, it's hard. I think our, one of our star witnesses said he didn't think they meant to do this. Um, which I think is fair. And he had to, he had to say on cross, but I think it also gave those jurors who, didn't want, didn't feel like punishing, didn't feel like it met their own understanding of what willful was a way to say, okay, even plaintiff's expert agrees with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and, and finally, I just wanted to ask you guys, I, I noticed in, in part of your, the transcript that there was an argument about uh, statute of limitations and there was a special interrogatory that went to the jury on essentially whether or not this, you know, uh, whether or not the statute of limitations had run. And, and, and it kind of goes back to this point of the, the initial case that was brought was, you know, brought just against uh, Mr. Mathinge. And then later on, Nissan was added to the case. Uh, and so, you know, they were going under the, the discovery rule, essentially, in order for the statute. Tell me your the thought process there and the argument there about the, the statute of limitations. Well, the statute of limitations was obviously very, very scary because it's a headshot, right? I mean, right. It, <laughs> obviously, you you spent all this time and all this money, and you you've done all these things. I mean, not to speak the obvious. I know most of our listeners are probably lawyers and work on these type of cases, but that was the just utter fear. Um, and you know, it was interesting because we really battled with whether we wanted the judge to throw out their statute of limitations defense at JML, right? I mean. We knew it was going to go up when we got a verdict, if we got a verdict, but we were just terrified that the jury could misunderstand. I mean, with special verdict, you know, special interrogatory like that. I mean, there's just so many different potential ways for that to go wrong. Candidly, um, Mathinge had a much more concerning uh, statute of limitations that, issue. That was exactly my thought as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I, we were, we were worried about that for, uh, for them. And, and frankly, that was one of the places where I think we him and egged a little together where um, for the first time, maybe in open and close and rebuttal and rebuttal, we were able to get up and really rip Nissan for even facilitating that argument. You know, the very people who buried the defect and who hit all these things are now coming in and asking you for a favor, asking you to let them off the hook because and to reward that behavior. Um, and we were able to include and kind of wrap Mathinga into that argument on our part 
in hopes that we could kind of help the team on that end because we were really worried that they might, that might be the baby they split, right? Is come back uh, in our favor on the statute of limitations and then, and then, you know, cut them. So we were obviously our clients are the people that we're most, you know, that's who we represent. That's who we're zealously representing. Um, but when it came to the statute of limitations, we, we paid attention. We, I mean, that was, it yeah. was concerning. And the judge did deny our JML, let it go to the jury. And obviously once the jury came back on our favor on that, it helped us on appeal. Right. Yeah, right. I'll also add to that. It's the first time I've ever had a case where defense counsel had the courage to try the statute of limitation defense. Yeah. I mean, usually it comes up during the litigation and you fight it out and it gets decided on dispositive motion. Or if he gets kicked down the road as a question of fact, you just it never comes up again. But I mean, Brett, we had some some worthy opposition in this case. I mean, they were truly, really, really good trial lawyers. And I thought the way that they presented it to the jury um, was scary as it could be. Now, we we attempted to to reframe what they were saying for the jury, because in some ways it's there's not a defect, but they knew about the defect. Right. And, Feels like you ought to be able to make hay out of that, but um, they did a real good job of presenting why these people ought to know something, and what they—that something ought to have been enough to trigger the statute. So it was scary. Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, in reading, uh, you know, what the judge was saying about it about Mathinge, which is, you know, he—he's being charged with a crime. Um, you know, he's been being charged with three counts of vehicular homicide. You think he might, you know, put a little bit of work into figuring out. You know, and he was saying that his his uh, you know brakes ha hadn't worked, so you you would you would think he would work a little harder. Was essentially what the judge was saying. But it, uh, I mean, obviously, it turned out well, and uh, and and we should tell everybody. I mean, so this is a, a fantastic verdict, and it did go up to appeal and got upheld all the way through appeal, right? Yes, it was paid. Judgment was paid with statutory interest, affirmed all the way to the California Supreme Court. Fantastic, great work, guys. Well, um, this has just been really good talking to you. Uh, I, I just, Brett and Jerome, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard about uh, Cruise versus Nissan North America that we haven't uh, told them yet? No, I think it's been great. Thank you all for having us, Steve and Yvonne. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me remind everybody that we, we've been talking about the case of Cruise versus Nissan North America, which was a total verdict of $24,931,109 against Nissan for their um, uh, defective brakes uh, in the uh, Infiniti QX56. Uh, and we have been talking to Brett Turnbull and Jerome Tapley. Uh, you can look up Brett at TurnbullLawFirm.com and you can look up Jerome at CoreyWatson.com. And that's Corey, C-O-R-Y, uh, Watson.com. Uh, Brett and Jerome, we really have uh, appreciated your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining. 
and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>